Hi everyone, my name is Alex, and welcome to the Black Sheep Broadcast. Today, my co-host Trey and I will be speaking with a very special guest. We will be interviewing Sandeep Nayak, who is a psychiatrist who works over at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. And his main point of interest is how psychedelics might be used to treat uh, mood disorders, eating disorders, and uh, addiction as well. Moving forward, we're pretty interested to see what he has to say, and we hope to understand this otherwise pretty taboo subject. So, let's get right into it. We generally start with just sort of broad introduction of uh, who you are and what led up to your interest in studying psychedelic medicines. Sure. I'm Sandeep Nayak. I am a psychiatrist at Hopkins, um, and I now I've just finished my like clinical training, and I've now started a research fellowship with um, focused on clinical trials of psychedelics in the last couple of months, like June, July. So my interest in this kind of dates back pretty far, but in sort of these separate threads that didn't really come together until more recently. Um, I studied religious studies in college, um, was very interested in Buddhist mysticism, um, at the same time was kind of loosely involved in meditation research, um, and also was very interested in like addiction, worked in needle exchange for a bit. And uh, at the same time, I, I knew I, I really enjoyed, uh, I, I wanted to take care of patients. And so these different things, this kind of like, religious mysticism aspect, this patient care aspect, addiction. The the thing that kind of unites all of them is behavior change. Hmm. But I kind of just stumbled into it. I mean, these were sort of interests that I maintained kind of separately, went to med school, yeah. um, was pretty dead set against psychiatry um, because I had a lot of stereotypes in my mind of what that, what that, what that looks like and what psychiatrists do most people probably have yeah like people on a couch just like tell me your feelings how does that make you feel kind of psychiatry but that's a pretty big uh leap i would say from going from religious studies to full-on like medical track psychiatry that's interesting well i never wanted to make a job out of i mean it was just stuff i was interested in um, that didn't really feel like it was going to tie together with any kind of practical use. But, you know, with the, the psychedelic trials, a lot of, I mean, they, they create mystical experiences. That's, yeah. that's one of the things that psychedelics do. It's not the only thing they do. Um, and that may, that seems to be related to some benefits somehow. Um, mm-hmm. And so I find that it is actually a useful kind of, thing to have in the back of my head and trying to understand what psychedelics are doing and why they might be useful. Yeah, for sure. Uh, did you have any sort of mystical experience like that, that maybe brought those sort of tied those things together? So, I mean, I, I was a big meditator. Well, I shouldn't say big. I mean, there's people that moved to the Himalayas and, right. you know, <laughs> but I was a meditator for a while. I mean, it was, I was exposed to it quite young actually. Um, yeah, I guess I began meditating with some regularity around middle school. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I don't know. It was kind of on and off. And I had some sort of, I don't want to say strange, but just unusual, just experiences through meditating that um, kind of made me scratch my head. And right. 
it's definitely something that has influenced my interest in this uh, field. And there, there are a lot of parallels with meditation and the psychedelic effects, I think. So how did, how did you get started looking into psilocybin? So psilocybin, there's literally infinite psychedelics, uh, like tr literally infinite yeah. psychedelics that haven't been made yet. Um, and for the, per my, there's a lot of like interesting questions surrounding psychedelics, but the one that's kind of like motivates me the most is like, are these useful? And they're, they're fascinating outside of that too, though. But so really psilocybin, the focus on psilocybin boils down to a lot of really practical stuff. So LSD, acid, really scary. People get freaked out by that. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to melt your chromosomes. It's going to melt your brain. You're going to jump out the window. A lot of baggage. Yeah. You're going to be um, an egg, egg frying on a frying pan. That's your brain on drugs or you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> I mean, just from like a public relations standpoint alone, I mean, LSD is a, was a bit of a non-starter for, you know, this research was kind of on pause for a long time. And psilocybin is, uh, they're very similar drugs in a lot of ways, but it doesn't have that baggage. Right. Um, it sounds more scientific. It does. It yeah. does. Acid. I mean, acid. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that, just from its actual um, its actual qualities, like image aside, I mean, LSD is a really long-lasting drug. Mm. Um, I mean, you, you could be using it clinically, I mean, like 10 and 12 hours even. Oh. Um, so psilocybin is a more manageable, like six to eight hours, uh, which is still quite long. Yeah. What, what kind of doses are people doing of them to, to, to get that experience of six to eight hours? They're, they're pretty big. I mean, they're big. Mm -hmm. They're not, I mean, they're moderate to large, I should say. Um, I don't exactly know what an equivalent would be with like dried mushrooms, but it's like yeah. four, four to five grams. Okay. Um, besides, besides time difference, is there a difference in the experience of psychedelics between like LSD versus uh, like acid? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th this is what's so great about this field is that there's, it's such a basic question you just asked me and we don't have the best answers. The diff different drugs do have different effects, yet they're broadly similar. Um, and we don't, we, we haven't really mapped out like where the differences are. I mean, LSD and psilocybin, uh, I mean, they're, they're not identical chemicals. They do have slightly different effects on the brain, um, but they certainly share more. They have more in common than they have apart, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but, but some of these other, I mean, like 5-MeO-DMT, have you heard of this? Yes, I've heard of DMT, so. yeah. Though honestly, yeah. I wasn't sure how it was different from psilocybin. So DMT and psilocybin look very, very similar. I mean, they're near, they're very, very similar drugs. Um, and yet, and they, they kind of produce similar effects. So DMT is often administered either, I mean, if you just swallow it, nothing happens. Your body will break it down. So it's either smoked, mm -hmm. um, which, I mean, that, that's a very different, route of administration it comes on a lot quicker there's more more intense rush or it's administered with another drug that prevents your body from breaking it down oh interesting but but there's another so so th there may be differences between d you know dmt and psilocybin it's a little hard to tease that apart from what is you know the route of administration the kinds of person and there's different kinds of people um that take dmt as opposed to it's hard it's hard to separate all that out 
but certainly people describe lots of entity encounters with DMT, which is, it does make you wonder if, I mean, what, what's that about? But 5-MeO-DMT yeah. is a different drug entirely. It is, it's in toad venom. I don't know if you've heard about this. I, I have like a horned toad or something in the desert. Something like that. Yeah. And so it similarly, it's taken, generally it's taken, it's smoked or, I mean, can be injected, but it, these are very fast on and off ways of taking a drug. Um, and people's description, again, we, we're going on anecdote. We don't have good data on this, which, right. but people's description of this is quite different. Like people describe like pure consciousness or mm -hmm. loss of self space. Um, and so why, why should that be that this, we don't really know, but ju just that basic mapping out, like how are these drugs different from each other? We haven't really done that yet. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm curious as, uh, you know, a medical professional or at least someone who is on definitely the more professional, you know, spectrum than someone who is just constantly doing psychedelics, like recreationally. I mean, I know you have a background uh, and like an interest in maybe like the more religious spiritual aspect to it. Is there any like barrier between that? Like, do you think like there are people that believe there's some sort of inherent like spiritual element to psychedelics like maybe we're getting a glimpse of something that isn't like entirely conjured up by your brain of course uh, probably most people would say it's just your sort of like static on the tv things that your brain is like producing i mean do you think that there's any mysticism to it or do you are you trying to reject that entirely so i guess it's kind of like are psychedelics showing you something really out there right you know? Right. So, yeah. Something otherwise inaccessible to the human mind. Gosh, there's a lot of ways I can answer this. Yeah. So it's a hard question. And obviously there's not like an answer. <laughs> well, okay. Let's start with, let's start one by one. Psychedelics are unique, but um, the experiences they produce are, it seems that they can happen spontaneously. Um, people, you know, lying on their bed, having some tea, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, and this is across history, have these just mystical experiences kind of explode onto them. Um, yeah. and, and it's described quite similarly. It's not going to be identical, certainly, but it may be that there's this broader category of experiences that psychedelics are able to more reliably produce. But, but that doesn't say anything about what, what it is or what it means. Um, people, psychedelics certainly cause people to question their assumptions yeah um and certainly people can walk out of psychedelic experiences with new beliefs for example yeah. about how reality works or how the mind works um and, and and that may be tied to some of these mystical experiences i mean you've you have some experience that leads to some kind of belief but i don't know i mean i, I don't i don't see that a purely naturalistic explanation can't explain these things. But it does seem that non-naturalistic explanations are very compelling for people who, some people who take psychedelics. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is very life-changing. I mean, I've never done any sort of psychedelic myself, but I have seen studies of people who, you know, after doing it, uh, they rank it very highly among like the most life altering experience, like uh, most of them, like number one. So clearly whatever subjective experiences people are having 
uh, is very powerful and really alters how the view reality and life and spirituality. Definitely. I am curious. Uh, so you're, you're trying to look at it as like a, a helpful thing, you know, trying to look at how psychedelics can help people. Um, you talked about that it's hard to see the difference between like LSD and like DMT in terms of their in terms of like their structure and stuff. Is there a difference in terms of their helpfulness, um, like their medical use? We don't know. I mean, <laughs> easy right. answer. We don't know. Yeah. Um, more more kind of complicated answer is well, look at DMT. I mean that that their Imperial College I think is just getting started up with a DMT study for depression. Um, but one kind of interesting question is these are really I don't actually know how they're doing it. I haven't looked at that yet, to be honest, but DMT, if it's administered in, in, a, in a way that's very quick onset, very quick offset, people describe that as getting shot out of a cannon, like, like really significant quick change. And mm-hmm. uh, some people would argue or wonder whether that makes it the experience harder to make sense of, or when these are used therapeutically in these trials, or at least attempted to be used therapeutically, um, a, a huge part of it is not just the drug, but also the preparation before and the integration after, which involves weaving a narrative that makes sense of, um, of these things. And, and it, it may be that a, lo- a longer experience is more manageable. You know, you have more time points that you can kind of like think through. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows? I mean, truly, who knows? There, I mean, there's even some people that argue that the subjective effects are not necessary for a therapeutic benefit Mm -hmm. it's a theory you can't actually argue that nobody knows but it it seems implausible but um it's not it's not impossible yeah well that's interesting i I mean i've heard of uh the way i've heard them described is like professional trip sitters essentially like have you ever seen uh, or uh, like seen that playing out some sort of therapist or clinician who is overseeing this psychedelic experience? Uh, so I do that in the studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happens underground, meaning illegally. Yeah. Um, but my only kind of interaction with it has been through these research studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, sure. what is that experience like in those research studies? So broadly, they're all, I mean, the structure, they're, they're, they're studies for for different types of conditions like depression, anorexia, and, and these are quite different, you know, eating disorder, depression. Mm-hmm. And so different problem, different kind of person. And yet the structure of the trials is, is pretty similar. You can divide it into three phases. There's preparation, there's dosing, and then there's integration. Preparation essentially involves really getting to know the person, getting a good sense of who they are, what they're about, what sort of problems you're struggling with and kind of just developing a rapport. Uh, the idea being that when they're going into the actual dosing session, they should feel like they're in the present the company of people that they actually can trust. And that, you know, if they need to ask for help or, mm-hmm. or whatever they can trust, but, but in the preparation, you know, you're also sort of talking through what, what would you want to change in your life? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, you're kind of laying the groundwork. And, and in a lot of ways, this is not totally dissimilar from what's happening in psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So, so you go into the dosing session with that. All of that is brought in with you, and including the relationship that you, you know, has been built up between the, the, the facilitators, the guides, and the, um, the patient. Then the dosing session itself, it's always two, two, 
facilitators who are there and the model is kind of like people are listening to music, their eyes are closed, they're lying down. Uh, and a lot of times, in, including me, when people first hear that, they just think, what, what like, why, uh -huh. <laughs> why would you close people's eyes? Why would you disconnect them from the world? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, is that a good idea? But it seems to work. And I, I would guess that it doesn't, you know, open eyes and maybe a more verbal experience would work better for others, but it's, it's just another basic question that needs to be asked and answered. Right. Um, and so, so really people are encouraged to kind of go back into the experience rather than sort of, you know, talking with, with the, the guides or certainly that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's kind of a private affair in some ways. It does sound like a very personal, like intimate affair as you know, this like therapeutic person, it requires, you know, like knowing something. Cause like, that's, that's one thing I've definitely heard is like, you know, you don't want to do it around strangers or people that will make you uncomfortable. You know, you want that degree of trust going into this experience. Right. So, yeah. you know, for these subjects, I mean, they, ideally they should feel comfortable crying if they need to cry, screaming mm. if they need to scream, mm. um, asking for help for, I mean, people, especially like patients with, for example, depression. I mean, a lot of times there's this sort of idea in their head that I'm not worthwhile. Hmm. Oh, I really got to pee, but I don't want to bother them. Or this pill is really uncomfortable, but I don't want to, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. It's like those, those kinds of things, everything gets magnified, you know, emotions, yeah. beliefs, everything gets magnified. Um, and so these are kind of trivial insignificant examples that are actually quite significant um and yeah. it's again stuff is happening as part of the, the the therapeutic relationship um that you would see in a regular psychotherapy interaction mm -hmm. um but, but that, that is like really i think people always talk about the drug um but but also it's the circumstances surrounding the drug that are equally important Right. Sort of having like a, like a direction or like a goal, having like an objective that you want to accomplish through this psychedelic. Is that about right? Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of backpedaling now because <laughs> again, I mean, like a, a trial that just gave, if, if you really wanted to know, right, this is how you would do it. Mm -hmm. You would have a trial. You can't do this though. It's like uh, unethical. Mm -hmm. This is how you could do it. You, um, have a trial where you have the full on um, therapeutic support, all of that. And you have, you know, the dosing session, the, the whole structure exactly as I described. And you have another where it's, they just get a big, a massive dose of a psychedelic and then you just see if they benefit <laughs> from it. Yeah. But um, there's just such a high risk of having difficult experiences that it's not, it's not ethical. Yeah, I assume you have had experiences with bad trip, with people having bad trips, though, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, have you noticed any common thread that could lead to those, or common threads? Yeah, I mean, th th things that can happen under a psychedelic experience, a lot of things can happen that are that are very scary. Mm -hmm. um, so one, like strange bodily sensations, is a, is an easy example. Um, it's something happening to my, but, but also people can be really confused. Uh, they can become paranoid. Uh, who are these people? I mean, I'm in a clinical trial. Are they experimenting on me? Right. Um, yeah. But also, am I going crazy? Um, 
it's it's not uncommon for people to have the experience of dying hmm. um like i mean these these are experiences that are very very far removed from normal everyday subjective reality and yeah. so especially for people who have no frame of reference i mean yeah to to, to think that you might be dying um it doesn't get worse than that. It's <laughs> pretty scary. Yeah. Well, but on the flip side of that, I have read studies about how uh, I, I believe it's like psilocybin therapy, uh, psychotherapy can help people who are sort of like on death's door, like people maybe with a terminal illness who know that death is coming. It can also help them have like very clarifying experiences and like come to terms with death. I, I, I guess coming to terms with death is like a difficult thing to quantify or, you know, like define in, in like a psychiatric like setting, but have you ever experienced anything like that? So I, I mean, I have not, Th those are, um, I mean, there were trials that were done with, um, I mean, people with life threatening illnesses can, there's actually been a number of them now, like cancer, for example. And, and yeah, I mean, having the experience that you feel like you're dying um, does not mean that something is going wrong with the, the ther psilocybin therapy. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, what do you, what, what does the patient now do with that? Um, Cause that's actually an enormous, you know, there's a lot of potential for that moment to learn something. And the instructions that people are given is to accept their experience and to not run away from it and to go into it. Mm. Um, and so I think I've even heard, one of the guides say, you know, you feel like you're going to die, die, let yourself die. And, and that, that is why, you know, you need to establish that trust beforehand. Yeah, yeah that is that <laughs> you're going far with these people or taking them to the edge. That's... Yeah. Cause you got to set up the frame. Like, look, we're watching you. All right. I mean, we're not going to die. You're not going to die. Um, let us worry about, about your physical. Yeah. Let, let us worry about that. You, you just go go into your experience and anything that pr provokes fear or um, distress, go into it. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, obviously you can imagine that that can go too, you can take that too far and, and there are, you know, but, but in general, the instruction is to accept your experience and to, and to go into it. And that, that, that can lead to, I mean, people can come out of that, that can change the experience. Mm -hmm. um, and for people may have, for example, more acceptance of death or they may see life in a different way or any mm -hmm. number of things. Yeah, for sure. I, so an important thing to address might be like the current legality of psychedelics, uh, I guess like specifically psilocybin, uh, it's still illegal pretty much every, I I've read it like Oregon has, is legalizing it for like therapeutic purposes, uh, what is it like across the U.S.? Is it mostly illegal? Mostly illegal. It's federally illegal. Um, there are, and I don't exactly remember which, where, but there are, there are places that have decriminalized it. Um, though, for example, a police officer can still confiscate it. Um, mm -hmm. It's not legal. Yeah. And um, Oregon, I think, is unique in that they have which I don't actually know much about, or but they've approved this to be used therapeutically. So yeah. I have no idea how that's going to pan out and what that's going to look like. Right. 
from what I've read, they're they're essentially entering like a two year plan to figure out, you know, now that we're gonna we're going to allow this, like what do therapists need in order to, you know, be qualified to like do this kind of thing. And I understand it like a bit more now after having, you know, talked about what this experience is like, is it's it, it does seem like a very intense experience for patients. So, you know, I I'm happy that there's some degree of like regulation in it, but that's interesting. Yeah. I'm also curious, what's, and, and you're like, from your perspective, what is the most interesting finding or I guess conclusion that has come out of research or research that you yourself have participated in? I mean, the smoking studies are, I mean, okay, look, like uh, there's a lot of critiques that you can make about these trials, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, they're valid. Um, but one of them is, okay, the placebo effect is really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, and people, th- these are studies where it's quite hard to mask the fact that you have given somebody the actual drug, right? Yeah. Even if it's placebo controlled. And so, um, one critique is that, Hey, look, I mean, these are effectively uncontrolled studies. Mm-hmm. And so how do you really know how well these are working? Sure. They have an effect, but looking at certain conditions where you have a pretty good idea of what's likely to happen with a normal court. I mean, smoke tobacco. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, uh, a pretty small open label study that showed, um, I think it was an 80% quit rate at six months, which mm-hmm. if you look at trials that have the um, absolute maximal therapy, like you've got CBT, you've got nicotine replacement, you've got this other medication for smoking cessation, bupropion, they don't, they don't get that good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is an ongoing, you know, properly randomized trial. Um, it's not blinded because, yeah. but it, it is comparing like, what does it look like when you compare psilocybin therapy for smoking cessation and really, really high quality, you know, CBT plus nicotine patch, mm-hmm. um, do those look different? And you know, it's not been published yet, but there's been some preliminary presentations and they're, they're quite, it's quite a bit better. Right. Um, And so that, that actually, I think is what excites me the most. I mean, there are a lot of interesting factoids, like people have belief changes. It's very meaningful. They, uh, whatever, but in terms of like hard, yes, no, you know, A or B. Right. I think smoking or not smoking. I mean, it's hard to interpret mm-hmm. that a different mm-hmm. way, you know? Right. Yeah. So there, there do seem to be some like anti-addictive properties uh, to uh, the, the, these psychedelics. So you said there was like an 80% success rate in like smoking. So that, yeah, that was a, that, study. that was an open label study. And so open label means, I mean, well, I guess for both open, it's a small study. Yeah. So um, you got to follow it up. And the follow-up studies, I don't remember the numbers. I mean, they're not that good. Mm-hmm. are not 80%, but it's still, it's still like quite, it's, yeah. it's still quite it's high. It's better than comparative. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Yeah. As far as using psychedelics in a like beneficent manner, are we mainly talking about um, treating addiction, depression? I've heard anxiety thrown in there. Uh, yeah, what what are some sort of 
uh, steps that psychedelics might be taking to improve people's health? Like what can it be, what can it be used to treat? Right. That's a good question. So, I mean, one way of thinking about this is, I mean, just try it for a bunch of individual conditions. Um, mm. Does it work? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And that's kind of what one thing that's happening. Um, but if you back up and think, well, why, why would a treatment be helpful for depression and addiction and, you know, all these different, what, what, what do these all have to do with each other? With the caveat that, you know, the, these trials have not actually been com fully completed yet. So we don't, we don't really know. Um, but it seems to, it seems to be related. It, its effects seem to be related to subjective experience. What was the other thing I was going to say? Oh yeah. And, and it seems to work across diagnoses. I mean, people, for example, in the smoking study had benefits that had nothing to do with them quitting smoking, for example. Um, and so in, in those two ways, I mean, works through subjective effects, transdiagnostic, that's kind of similar in description to psychotherapy, mm. which also, I mean, is helpful for addiction, is helpful for depression, can be helpful for all kinds of things. And so I kind of think of it as, this is my own, not, I think a lot of people think of it like this, not everyone does, as it's kind of doing something that psychotherapy in general is more, uh, it's also doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in, if that's the case, then it could potentially be useful for all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Are there any identifiable long-term uh, like negative consequences you've seen? Clearly there is, you know, like social cultural taboos against this. There's definitely, uh, you know, with, with any sort of, uh, quote unquote drug sort of like panic culture, but have you observed like clinically uh, or do you have any sort of like known beliefs about what this can do to someone in a negative light? Yeah. Long-term. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's three things that pop up in mind. So, well, one, um, and this is true for any drug. I mean, cannabis is a great example. Yeah. Um, you can't just look at a drug and say that's a good drug or a bad drug, or that's a right. harmful drug or a helpful drug. Um, it, it depends on the person. Yeah. And so there are, for example, with cannabis, it's been so black and white. Oh, it reefer madness, or this is medicine that there, there's actually, it's hard to talk about it in the in-between, uh, mm -hmm. namely talking about like what's good, what's bad. And so for example, people with bipolar disorder, cannabis can often be quite destabilizing for people with bipolar disorder doesn't mean that cannabis is bad in general or that. And so, and so that psychedelics, it does seem like they may, they can provoke, for example, psychosis or mania in people that are predisposed to those things. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have a good sense of the risk. Um, and we, we try to mitigate that risk by not including people who might be predisposed in those studies, but, my point is, is that there, there may be, and there probably are people for whom psychedelics are actually on average harmful. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I mean, I've heard the same arguments posed for, uh, yeah, like things like cannabis use, where if there is a history of, uh, you know, mental health problems, those could be exacerbated in the process. But yeah, it, it makes sense. Not la not labeling drugs necessarily, you know, good or bad. I mean, I guess I, I don't know like the terminology of the word drug, but I feel like that's sort of the point 
is consulting someone and they decide whether or not to give you a drug. You shouldn't just take ibuprofen because for whatever reason, like if you have circumstances where it would help you, you should do it. Yeah. Everything is the risk benefit. Um, another, you know, there's also stuff where it's like hard to say, is it harm or is it not harm? I mean, again, this is a, an area where a proper study, prospective studies, meaning you measure, measure it before and after people, but belief changes. I mean, anecdote is rife with all of these stories of people having pretty significant changes in their beliefs about all kinds of things. For example, religious or, um, you know, belief in the fundamental nature of reality. And it's kind of tricky because the studies that have been done so far are largely, we, we don't know how often this is actually happening for, you know, if person A takes a psychedelic, do, what kinds of belief changes are they likely to experience? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe the answer is none. Right. Uh, but then there's a subset of people, psychedelic enthusiasts or, or whatever, who are more likely, who are, who are more vocal on the internet. But um, yeah, I, I just think that in general, a, a drug that has the potential to change beliefs, you got to think about whether or not that could ever be harmful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes. I'm I'm curious if you've ever or Trey. I'm not sure if you've heard of this. Have y'all heard of the stoned ape theory? No. That essentially, and I I might be mistaken. Uh, Sandeep can probably explain it much better than I. But from from what I've read, essentially that psilocybin could have been responsible for some like tremendous brain growth back when. Uh, and oh, I'm I not I, actually. Yeah, and I, I'm not yeah. sure about like the anthropological categorization of you know what we were at that time if it was human or if it was like early more like early forms of humans. Uh, am I explaining that about right, Sandeep, or is it a little yeah. bit different? Yeah. The stoned ape theory is Terrence McKenna's, I believe Terrence McKenna's uh, idea. I don't know how seriously he took it, but that yeah. kind of earlier on in our evolution, some hominid in Africa, not quite human, yeah, took psychedelic mushrooms and that somehow catalyzed changes in our evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very entertaining idea. Yeah. Um, it, it, I don't even know how to begin to, (laughs) (laughs) I have heard that psychedelics can change neural pathways. Is that correct? I mean, everything can change neural pathways. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that is true. (laughs) Everything changes neural pathways. Um, it sounds very sexy to say that with psychedelics, but, um, Trauma can change neural pathways. Meditation can change neural pathways. Psychotherapy. Um, so certainly it's doing something unique to the brain. Um, and one of the ways in which, you know, changing neural pathways, I guess people don't just mean that in the sense that anything can change neural pathways. Maybe there's a more specific, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist. Mm-hmm. And um, Neither are we <laughs> Yeah. And so I, I think my bias in talking about this is one, there's a lot I don't know, but two, there is a lot of neuroscience that gets attached to psychedelics. It's like, here's a sexy thing and here's another sexy thing. And these things can be sexy together. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also a lot of talk that doesn't really make that much sense. So one of the consistent findings from uh, fMRI studies. So these are brain scans of people at rest. They're not doing anything. 
Right. You can get people to do all kinds of stuff like count the sheep or look at those colors or whatever. But there, there's a, there's a thing that your brain does at rest. It engages in the default mode network. It's your task off network. And this seems to be related to self-processing or, or rumination or mind wandering. And there's this consistent finding that with psychedelics, you have decreased activity of the default mode network. And you can make this very compelling story of, oh, it's dissolving the default mode network is related to the sense of self. You're dissolving the sense of self. And that's why psychedelics are, but SSRIs also do that. And ketamine also does that. And, and salvia also does that. And so I don't know. I also don't understand these things. Yes. So <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't claim to, to really understand what psychedelics might be doing to the brain. Um, nor do I think, Kind of with the tobacco example, I mean, you can look at the outcome. And for me, that's kind of the most striking aspect of it. This person mm-hmm. stopped smoking. Yeah. Um, yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, looking forward sort of into the future, I know these things are hard to predict. Uh, I mean, do you see any sort of clear future for psychedelic research? are in your mind are you set on like oh yeah you know this is going to go quickly uh it's going to be like the the future of uh psychotherapy or do you really have an idea of what the future might look like um yeah i think it's likely that psychedelics will be approved to treat clinical conditions um like fda approved and i i also think it's likely that we are going to have trials that that show that, that fail yeah I don't think psychedelics are going to be good for everything. Um, and, and we, you know, we, we may learn something from failures such that this is salvageable somehow. If you would do it in this, that, or the other way, maybe it will work. But I don't think that, I, I think it's very likely that this will become an available treatment. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how it will be regulated and mm-hmm. what that will look like. Um, but it will look like most probably um, patients go somewhere and they spend like the day there. Like, yeah. That would, that would, that would make sense. Yeah. Kind of a day long kind of thing. And, and it would most likely be attached to, um, kind of this thing that I'm talking about with the, the person that's going to be with you, you meet them beforehand, you get to know each other and then you kind of debrief afterwards. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that it could, that it could look. There's also all kinds of ways it could go off the rails too. I mean, I don't, True. I don't True. really know. Yeah. I don't think it's going to replace um, conventional treatments though. Yeah. But we could get a little psychedelic day camp, a little getaway. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is that these are not just, I'm very interested in this as everyone else is for good reason of the therapeutic potential, but this is a drug. I mean, Drugs are used for all kinds of reasons. And even if psychedelics were not therapeutically useful, right? Even if they do nothing for depression or addiction, I mean, they're still unique, unique drugs. And the process of getting a drug approved for, this is just kind of one of my soapboxes, but a lot of things in America kind of get passed through the door of the medical system. Yeah. Like marijuana recreational legalization, kind of the midpoint of that was medical marijuana Mm -hmm. um even though those things shouldn't actually be all that related 
Um, and so I, I kind of am seeing something similar happen with psychedelics where you're, you're taking therapeutic use, you're taking non-therapeutic use and you're kind of, people are smushing them together, but these can be separate things. Yeah. And they should be, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd never thought about it. Do you think there are any like um, big research milestones or, or things you guys, you, you want people to have like, have figured out about psilocybin before it becomes like widely available for medical use? Honestly, no. I, th- I think it's like a little thing that needs to be figured out. And which is just like a very, here's my thing. If psychedelics are going to be clinically useful, right? The data should be convincing and compelling to somebody who does not care about psychedelics. Somebody who is maybe even anti-psychedelics, mm-hmm. right? Um, those are the people that should be, the, the data should be that compelling that those people are, are convinced. Um, and so for right now, I mean, this is still a purely experimental procedure that has not been approved and has not been proven to work for any of these conditions, at least according to like a, a certain kind of rigorous standard. And so that's in my mind, like the first step, if that happens, you know, you can demonstrate that psilocybin is actually an effective treatment that's enough to open it up to widespread medical use. Um, and so, but making it that very, very concrete, does this work? Who does it work for? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, cause again, I mean, we're still in this absurd condition that this is a federally illegal drug, um, which, which, which does kind of make it difficult to study. And so that's the thing that I think I'm most looking forward to is figuring that out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think a big a big part of uh, figuring that out is ending the war on drugs. That would be a big, <laughs> I mean, it's a big goal. But yeah. I think that, I think you kind of need that to happen before these things become sort of detached from the negative uh, connotation. Of- I mean, that's the, that, again, it's weird with cannabis is that I couldn't have imagined 15 years ago that you're going to see legalized, rec- legal recreational marijuana. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just seemed like unthinkable to me. I mean, I, I also grew up in South Georgia, so yeah. I have like a, <laughs> a sense of the country that's maybe, but, um, the thing that seemed to normalize it was the medical, the medicalization of it. Yeah. It's weird when you think about it, but that's what has normalized. That's what's normalizing psilocybin to a lot of people is the medicalization of it. Um, and these decriminalization initiatives, these legalization, they're kind of riding on the heels of clinical research. Yeah. Um, though it's almost unfortunate that, that, that is what has to happen. It's like, you have to medicalize something before you can, I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, uh, before we sort of close things off, Sandeep, do you have any, uh, plugs that you want to give places where people can find out more about your research, what you do? Uh, yeah, our website. Oh gosh, what is our website? J H Psychedelics. J- oh, sorry, Hopkins HopkinsPsychedelic.org. Okay. Um, there you go. That has information about us, who we are, our ongoing research studies, which are active. Um, we have some studies going on with um, anorexia, depression, uh, smoking, others, others to come. But also, we're always doing all kinds of. Um, uh, online surveys as well. Uh, 
there's, an, there's one really important question we need to figure out is antidepressants. So let's say psilocybin, miracle cure for depression. People are on antidepressants that we know interfere with psilocybin in some way. And we don't really know what do you do. You, you stop it. And there's just a lot of unknown questions about the interaction between antidepressants and psilocybin. So right, yeah. we have a survey that's live. Uh, it'd be one really straightforward, concrete way. If anyone's taken, any listeners out there have taken psilocybin while on an antidepressant or shortly after stopping an antidepressant, please do take our survey. Um, it, it's invaluable information that can, can really help push things forward. All right. Yeah. If anyone's listening, uh, follow through with that. Uh, well, thank you very much for being on with us today. It's yeah, been a real pleeling. pleasure. I feel like coming out, know a lot more about psychedelics than I did <laughs> this morning. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. It seems fun to have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You sh- yeah. You should try it out. You yeah. should talk about uh, psychedelics. If you Maybe. want to be back on here anytime as a guest host, just let us know. Oh yeah, the Psychcast. <laughs> the Psychcast. That, yeah. prob- that probably that, exists. There's probably a hundred Psychcasts. Yeah. The, Great. Yeah. Good to meet you both. Yeah, that was really cool to learn about. Um, I didn't know that much about psychedelics going in, but now yeah. I know. Yeah. For sure. That might be the future. I mean, you know, I thought it would be weird to see like little weed shops sprouting up everywhere. Maybe 15 <laughs> years from now, it's yeah. shrooms are us are going to be, uh, shrooms are, are going to be sprouting up everywhere. Up. Yeah. No pun intended. They were, yeah. The, uh, the psychedelic economy is really going to mushroom in the next. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> like our content check out our youtube channel please subscribe and also leave us a review on apple podcast you can also check us out on facebook and instagram and leave us a like and if you want to be on the show shoot us an email at blacksheetbroadcast at gmail.com thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on the black sheet broadcast